At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This was the song kids in Utah public schools sang back in the mid-90s. I was one of them. Eight years old, a little blonde girl with big crooked teeth who loved singing. It was Utah's 100th birthday. We performed this song over and over to celebrate. I loved it. I sang about how beautiful the mountains were and belted out verses about Brigham Young and how the Mormon settlers got here. This is how interwoven Utah's culture is with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We even have an official state holiday to celebrate the Mormons arriving in the Salt Lake Valley. It's called Pioneer Day. Listening to these lyrics now as an adult, I realize this song is about more than state history. It's about how Utah sees itself and how it wants the rest of the world to see it. Mormon values fundamentally are family values. Lindsay Hansen Park runs an independent nonprofit that studies Mormonism. It's not affiliated with the church. But like most people in Utah, Lindsay grew up in the faith and in the culture that's deeply intertwined with it. It's very uh, 1950s. Father is a hardworking provider, clean cut. Wife stays home, nurturer, takes care of the family, and the kids fall in line. They're good, obedient children. They're smiling, they're happy. That's kind of our values as Mormons. And that image is one reason Utah has become such a popular place to send troubled teenagers. Ken Stetler used to oversee the whole industry as a state regulator. He says parents used to tell him the church's influence was a selling point for them. Everything we know about Utah is that it's wholesome, and so it seems like a good place to send a kid, right? Stetler is a member of the church himself, and he says its influence is one reason why Utah has the perfect workforce for the treatment industry. People of that faith believe that their role and responsibility on the earth is to help one another and to help others that need the help, you know, and the idea of Working in a facility where you can help a kid turn their life around is appealing. But Lindsay Hansen Park says helping others is just part of it. Utah is also a place that believes deeply in free enterprise. Mormons are capitalists at the end of the day. We absolutely monetize our theology. 
So this teen treatment center is a perfect example of that. We have this idea of what a good child looks like, what behaviors are acceptable. And now we're not going to only believe that for ourselves. We're going to turn it into a business model and we're going to help your kids live the way we want our kids to live as well. And we're going to charge you for it. And we're going to make a lot of money. This is Sent Away, an investigative podcast from KUER, the Salt Lake Tribune, and APM Reports. This show isn't appropriate for young children. And if you haven't heard our first five episodes, you should really start there. You're listening to episode six. This is the place. I'm Jessica Miller. I've lived here in Utah my whole life. And now I write for the big newspaper in the state. Whenever I've told people I'm working on a podcast about the teen treatment industry here, how its revenues have grown to hundreds of millions of dollars a year, how more kids are sent here for help than to any other state, their first question is almost always, why Utah? How did we end up with so many of these treatment programs? And how did we get a regulatory system that seems so inadequate to hold them accountable? The culture is a piece of it for sure. But that's only part of the answer. To get the rest of it, we have to go back to the place that started it all. This is a place that cares. This is a place that we're allowed to care. And this is a place that we can serve. Provo Canyon School opened in 1971, a bit south of Salt Lake City. It's still one of Utah's biggest and best-known programs. The business marketed itself to parents whose kids had failed out of traditional schools because of emotional or behavioral problems. And Ken Stetler, the former state regulator, says Provo Canyon School quickly spawned imitators. Probably almost anybody that's involved with youth treatment nowadays can probably draw some tie back to Provo Canyon in some way or another. You might remember Stetler from our first episode. He was the one who gave Integrity House a second chance after a girl died on a field trip in 2002. But he had been deeply involved in regulating this industry for more than a decade before that. So he saw the industry grow. And to illustrate his point, Stetler literally sketched out a family tree with Provo Canyon School as its trunk. (laughs) I mean, you can basically do a tree type of thing, and if you put your original founders... Jack Williams starts uh, Cinnamon Hills. You got um, Gene Thorne with Discovery Academy. And pretty soon, it wasn't just the founders. Jerry Santos. Jerry had been a therapist at Provo Canyon. So there you've got Heritage Schools. Um, Bob Litchfield... He goes over here and starts a a program called Cross Creek Manor. Litchfield and his family would go on to start a whole bunch of programs. We found an oral history interview with his brother-in-law, a rancher named Dan Pert. The ranch was struggling. He and his wife owned a bunch of land in northern Utah in the mid-1980s. I just didn't know if he was even going to be able to hang on to it. And I had a brother-in-law that was working down at Provo Canyon Boys School. 
And he'd told us before, you know, you got to look at doing this. And so we, we did and thought, well, okay, you come up and do it. We got the ranch. You, you get the kids and come on up and do it. And how difficult can it be? That was Majestic Ranch. Other Provo Canyon School progeny include Silverado Academy, Logan River Academy, Cascade Academy, Canyon Creek, Copper Hills Youth Center, and then employees of those treatment centers, some of them decide to open their own businesses. Daniel Taylor was one of them. He worked at Copper Hills before he opened Integrity House. So treatment centers are popping up all over Utah. But throughout the 1970s and most of the 80s, the state government had very little authority over them. And allegations of mistreatment and abuse had been filtering out of some of them for years. A controversial wilderness program that costs parents up to $20,000 and may cost their kids a lot more. Strip search, forced to live on dirty water, refused clean underwear, marched 15 miles a day with a concussion and a broken toe. Forced standing and sitting for long periods of time, physical beating, solitary confinement, and polygraph testing to detect so-called deviant thoughts and behavior. Serious charges of mistreatment of juvenile students at the Provo Canyon School were made today by the American Civil Liberties Union. The ACLU today filed a class Chuck, is that Provo Canyon School licensed by the state? No, they're not. In fact, that's one of the points that Judge Jenkins brought out today that uh, this type of institution needs to be regulated by the state. Utah is a deep red Republican state. The GOP usually wins by 20 or 30 points here. Regulation, more bureaucracy. These are dirty words here in Utah. But with media attention mounting, this question of whether Utah should start licensing youth treatment programs was getting too loud to ignore. My reporting partner, David Fox, will have more on that in a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes, you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's David Fox. In 1989, Ken Stetler had been working in government-run juvenile corrections programs for about 10 years. And he moved into a new job, trying to figure out what the government should do about all these treatment programs for kids. Should this be allowed in our state to continue, or should it not? And if it is allowed, under what circumstances? Stetler says his boss and mentor, a longtime state official named Wayne Holland, wasn't sure regulating all these places was going to be worth the trouble. So there were those, and Wayne, frankly, was one who was leaning towards the let's outlaw 
you know, because the logistics of just making sure that kids were safe out there all the time was going to be a near impossible task. But other people in the department disagreed, and Stetler was one of them. He had known classmates from high school who had gone through treatment. I shared my experiences that I knew that kids had been helped by these programs and came back swearing by it, that it changed their lives. So I was kind of on the side of, if we're going to allow that to operate, we need to put some standards together, no question. But there is some benefit to them. Utah could have shut its whole youth treatment industry down. But Stetler's side won out. And in 1990, he worked with the treatment programs and the legislature to create a set of regulations. They'd require treatment programs to be licensed and inspected for the first time. But in the six months before the rules officially took effect, something happened that made Stetler wish his state had acted sooner. We had two fatalities in wilderness programs before we even started regulating. And had we been able to enforce, had we been able to have standards that were being followed, both could have been prevented. I don't think there's any question. But the deaths didn't stop the industry from growing, and neither did the new regulations. The industry had taken root, and Utah proved fertile ground. It had a squeaky clean reputation, an eager workforce, and it had something else too. Utah is considered a parent's rights state. That means parents get to make medical decisions on behalf of their children. That's not how it works in every state. In California, for example, a 12-year-old kid can check themselves out of a program if they don't want to be there. But send that kid to Utah, and they can't leave unless their parents agree. And now, with the new law passed in 1990, all those programs could get a seal of approval from the state of Utah. And the industry exploded. When I first started with the OSA licensing, I had 30 youth programs that I was licensing, 32, I think. By 96, I had 168. From 32 to 168 in less than a decade. And Stetler was the one who had to drive all over the state by himself to check whether those programs were following the rules. Do you ever, have you ever felt like it grew up too fast? No. You know, as long as they were able to maintain their services and do it appropriately and that sort of thing, then... I didn't see a problem there at all. Stetler left the licensing office for a while in the mid-90s, and the place staffed up a bit. He says the office had to hire two and a half people to replace him. He worked for another part of state government for a while, and in 2002, he came back to run the licensing office. And now that he was the boss, Stetler wanted to make sure his office was working to help the industry improve, not just to regulate it. There had been some cases where licensors had been coming down pretty harsh on programs. There had been a number of complaints from programs saying that, you know, our licensor is really just a mean guy. (laughs) And so I remember the first meeting I had with him, I said, we're going to be a kinder, gentler office of licensing. 
I don't want to hear any reports about my licensor's mean or yelled at me or they're imposing a sanction for nothing, you know, without merit. We're not going to be the Gestapo, if you will. That's not who we are. We need to help them meet the requirements. Collaborating with programs to help them improve their services, that was a core part of Stetler's approach to regulation. The perception might be, oh, yeah, we want a bulldog-type licensor going in there. But the barking bulldog oftentimes isn't able to hear what he needs to hear because he's barking too much. You don't want to create an adversarial relationship. As soon as you do that, then their tendency is to be defiant. They're not going to be trusting or forthcoming with information like you'd like to have them do. You know, what we want to get across to them is this rule is here for a reason. There's real meaning behind it. How can we help you meet it? Stetler was so committed to working with the programs that he became deeply involved in the trade group that represents the youth treatment industry. It's called the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs, NATSAP for short. In fact, Stetler told us he was the one who brought its founders together and encouraged them to form a group in the first place. Ken is the uh, antithesis of a bureaucrat. <laughs> this is a recording from a NATSAP event a decade or so ago. Ken did a session with Jared Bomber. He's one of the founders of NATSAP, and he started several treatment centers in Utah and elsewhere. And, and Ken uh, has done a fabulous job, we think, in the state of Utah of letting the facilities from the ground up input their knowledge so that we come up with the best rules and the best statutes that we can possibly come up with. The name of the session was The Rules of the Game Are Changing. And the basic idea was that some things that used to be considered acceptable in treatment programs weren't anymore and could now get the programs in trouble. So Balmer and Stetler made it into a little quiz show for the attendees. Abuse or no abuse? They threw out a whole bunch of examples to the group. All of them were based on things they said had actually happened in real treatment programs. Program rules require students who violate basic safety rules to move a pile of dirt from one place to another. A shovel and wheelbarrow are made available. You see this one you, coming? You've been to programs like that? I have. Used to be a big part of programs as many as 10 years ago. Does this rise to the level of maltreatment? So it depends, okay? It depends on the size of the dirt pile. About the size of the shovel. Depends on the size of the shovel. Whether it's part of the program. These are the variables. And if you have the perfect alignment of these variables, you either come down on the maltreatment side or you come down on the safe side. And the trade group has shown its appreciation for Stedler. In 2011, NATSAP honored him with its leadership award for his work in Utah's government. Do you think there, that's too much coziness? I, I think there are some people that might say that, wow, there should be a firewall between the regulator and the industry that they're regulating. If people are thinking that, then they've got a poor understanding, I guess, of how it all works. 
they must be looking at a licensor as wanting them to be that bulldog again. You know, nothing is accomplished by building a firewall between people. In 2013, Stetler ended his nearly four-decade career in state government, and he went into the private sector. He became the executive director of one of the youth treatment programs he once oversaw. His new job was at Provo Canyon School. The place had grown considerably since it was founded in the 70s. It was now owned by a large healthcare conglomerate based in Pennsylvania. Stetler was there for about three years, and he led the overhaul of the program's policies and procedures. He was even the interim CEO of Provo Canyon School for a few months. Today, Stetler works as a consultant. He advises treatment programs on how to meet state regulations. One of his clients is Havenwood Academy, the place that used to be called Integrity House. Havenwood told the state it had hired Stetler after the program got caught putting residents in horse troughs. Stetler declined to comment on that contract. He says residential treatment isn't perfect, and it's not the best option for a lot of kids. But for some, it's the best we've got. And the government's job is to make it better. One of your questions that you'd asked me before was, how do I see regulation in the ideal world? In the ideal world, there would be none because everybody would do what they needed to do. You know, all programs would do everything right, do everything righteously. Sorry, we're not there. I'd like to get us there. I think that'd be terrific. Stetler's ideal is closer to reality than you might think. When you look at the state's records, you can really see just how hands-off Utah's regulatory system has been. In general, there are two ways the state enforces its regulations. One is those inspection checklists we told you about in episode two, the ones with all the boxes marked compliant, where the average score was 98%. The other is called a critical incident report. If you want to look inside of the facilities, you have to look into these critical incident reports. Will Kraft is our data reporter, and he spent a lot of time looking at those reports. Treatment programs are supposed to file them every time something bad happens. Someone gets injured, gets the wrong meds, runs away, an employee is accused of abuse. Anything that jeopardizes health and safety, the people who run the place are supposed to send a report to the state. Complaints from parents, employees, and residents can also trigger a report. So the way they work is when a report comes in, the state is supposed to investigate and figure out whether any rules had been broken. So that's how it's supposed to work. But the documents Will looked at tell a different story. We got every single one from the last six years where the state found that a major rule had been broken. And my jaw dropped because what I found was that in all of 2016, 
there were only four rule violations. There were only nine in 2017, and in 2018, there were only 22. And as I was reading through these documents, I kept thinking to myself, like, what was the state doing in 2016 that they found so few rule violations? So then Will started looking at some of the critical incident reports where the state didn't find rule violations. Essentially said, nothing to see here. There was one incident that really stood out to me. It's from 2016. Will started digging, and he found out there was video of the incident. So the security camera footage shows a hallway. There's a bunch of kids there. One of them has a broom. He's sweeping the floor a little half-heartedly. And there's a staff member who says something which we can't hear. And the kid throws the broom down and walks up to the staff and kind of pushes him. And then the staff member grabs him by the back of the head and throws him to the ground and gets on top of him. Another staff member quickly runs in and separates them. The boy started complaining about a headache and upset stomach. And the treatment center told his parents it was just an ear infection. But when they took him to the doctor after eight days, he had a concussion. The boy's mother was outraged. Her name is Michelle Westmoreland, and she reported the incident to the state. They just took my statement. They just took took my, the information down. I don't believe that I ever got any feedback from them whatsoever. The staffer was charged with child abuse, although the case was later dropped. A child protection investigator wrote that the incident was a licensing violation. But the state office in charge of overseeing that license, all it did was document Michelle's complaint. The critical incident report says, quote, During this call, I primarily listened. No follow-up, no violations found. The report went into the Office of Licensing's nothing to see here pile. As far as we can tell, the office did nothing. And this is where we should tell you the name of the treatment program where this happened. This was Provo Canyon School. Provo Canyon School. The business that launched the whole industry. The place where Ken Stetler worked after he left his job as a regulator. In fact, he was revising the policies and procedures there when this incident happened. The school's parent company sent us a statement that said they are committed, quote, to providing high-quality care to youth with special and often complex emotional, behavioral, and psychiatric needs, end quote. But there's a bigger problem in Utah than any one incident. This whole system relies on trust. When anything goes wrong, the programs need to report it. And the state's job is to make sure they're doing that and they're following all the rules. And the data clearly show that until just a few years ago, that was barely happening. 
Not only did the state find hardly any rule violations, the programs reported hardly any incidents. In all of 2016, the state received only 66 critical incident reports, fewer than one per program. So it looked like everything was basically fine. But the real story was that programs just weren't reporting everything that was happening. We know that because the state recently started enforcing the requirement that programs file those reports. And the numbers skyrocketed. In 2020, the state received almost 1,500 critical incident reports. That's 22 times as many as they'd gotten a few years earlier. There were way more problems than regulators had ever realized before. Next week, the movement to fix them. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much. My name is Paris Hilton. Frankly, we failed to protect you, and I'm sorry about that. You know, there, there's no words sometimes. I'm so sorry. I can't look at the stuff that you've reported on, the emails I get, and ignore it. I'm incapable of doing that at this point. I have realized that we need to hold these programs accountable. Plus, what happens when the Taylor family tries to get back in the treatment business? What have I been doing? Yeah, yeah, what have you been doing, like, for a living? No, I'm just, you know, just doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not hard to find out what I'm doing for a living. Mm -hmm. That's next time on Sent Away. Don't miss our final episode. Go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Sent Away. And please write us a review while you're there. You should check out our website, too. It's sentaway.org, and it's got more stories on Utah's teen treatment industry and the state's oversight of it. Sent Away is produced by APM Reports, KUER, and the Salt Lake Tribune. It's reported by David Fox, Jessica Miller, and me, Curtis Gilbert. Data reporting by Will Kraft. Kate Cahan is our editor, and she had help from Elaine Clark and Matt Canham. Fact-checking by Betsy Towner-Levine. Our web editor is Andy Cruz. Michael Alcesser is the managing producer. Scoring and production by Nancy Rosenbaum, with sound mixing from Alex Simpson. Engineering by David Childs. Original music by Roddy Nickpool. We also had help from our great intern, Hannah Ekramadine.
Support for Sent Away was provided by Arnold Ventures, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the Hollyhock Foundation.